Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm excited today to have uh, Christine O'Reilly, the grazing and forage specialist with OMAFRA today uh, on with us. Christine, why don't you say hi and maybe introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Hi, Keith. Thanks for having me. So I, I'm based out of the OMAFRA office in Lindsay, Ontario, so central Ontario, east of Highway 400. Uh, I'm a grazing nerd. I've got stored forages in my file too. <laughs> I know that's really where the dairy yep. stuff comes in is mostly the stored forage piece. So we're going to yep. talk about that today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So did you go to, like, are you from the Lindsay area or whereabouts? Uh, what's your background maybe a little bit? No, um, I grew up in Huron County. I attended Kempville College for a bit. Uh, I'm a University of Guelph grad as well. So did, did the, the classic egg education for Ontario, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've kind of kind of been all over the place. So Yeah, we have quite a few actually listeners from uh, Huron County here too, just so whereabouts are you? And are you related to Ryan O'Reilly? Uh, no, I'm not. As far as I know, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. So, uh, well, we might as well get to it. I know you probably see a lot more of the province than, than what I do. I'm kind of more based in kind of Western and Southwestern Ontario. So, you know, what are you seeing across the province as a whole, as it comes to, you know, forage quality? I know some producers have got some triticale and some rye in. Uh, a lot of producers are working on uh, second cut hay now. I know a lot of really good reports coming back on some, uh, some dry hay here with first cut with some beef and, and horse uh, producers. So I was just wondering what you're seeing out there. Yeah, um, so it, it's it's variable across the province. Um, when we're coming into dairy first cut, so like end of May, first week of June, um, the reports I was really getting from the field were everyone was most most everyone was pleasantly surprised with yield. Um, I mean, we had such a dry spring. There was a lot of concern of like, oh, it's it's a short crop. Is it going to make it? But I think that a lot of um, a lot of that positive feedback really came from a combination of a few things. So first of all, we had a pretty mild winter this last mm -hmm. year. That really lended itself to great alfalfa overwintering. We had very, very little winter kill this year. And if, if you contrast that to two years ago, the winter of 2019, we had so much winter kill. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we caught a nice break there. Um, another thing that I think really helped get that first cut off to a great start and, and really helped with those yields was the fact that last fall and this spring we had fantastic conditions to apply manure so a lot of manure went out on fields that um, maybe don't get it on as regular a basis because they're just a little bit further from the barn but we had great windows for application when we're not compacting the soil and we could really get that manure out um and the third thing that i was really hearing more from agronomists and retailers was a strong emphasis on fertility this spring so at Greenup and, and leading into, before, before the crop really jumped, before we got a lot of that heat uh, a little bit later in the spring, there was a lot more fertility going out on hayfield than retailers and agronomists were used to seeing. It was more than what they were expecting. So I think there was just, you know, great windows for application and a stronger emphasis on let's, let's have a really healthy crop. Let's feed this crop the nutrients it needs. And I think those, those three things, the weather, the weather again for manure application yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and and that focus on the agronomy has re really helped first cut um since then we get a little bit more variable so um regrowth has been great in areas that have gotten rainfall average or above average rainfall so that's mostly uh western ontario southern ontario once you get into central and eastern ontario rainfall has been a lot more scattered um it's, it's been drier in the north as well so that regrowth is really affected by that rainfall and that's where we start to see it um, less consistent across the province in terms of, of yield potential for subsequent cuts, second, third. I'm hearing very variable reports. Like a lot of producers are saying, wow, second cuts, you know, pretty good. Another ones that maybe went a week or two weeks ago, kind of before that rain um, kind of came through the, the Western part of the province is that uh, 
it was light and you know just going to farms and looking at people's inventory so far i'm just like hey what are we what are we gonna do here we gotta feed some cows i mean the corn crop right now looks phenomenal in most places and it's coming along pretty good but just kind of concerned about uh just overall inventory but then like you said yeah there are certain areas where you know they've really lucked out with the rain and and cut timing and things like that and had some pretty good second cut um you said something pretty interesting about fertility so like what do you think is the the trend or why do you think producers are are putting more fertility on alfalfa i think it's a combination of things so we've had the last few growing years have been kind of the oh are we gonna have enough and then then we kind of squeak through sort of growing years and of course again it depends where in the province you are some some areas have been fine and they're going to listen to this and be like, Christine, what are you talking about? And other areas <laughs> have, have, have struggled a bit with the, the growing conditions and maybe maybe not quite getting that timely rain when they needed it. Um, so because of that, you know, there's there's maybe less of that feeling of like, oh, there's a buffer somewhere. So that mm-hmm. kind of drives some of those agronomy decisions. Um, the availability of like to pick up extra acres, can you rent more ground? That's, that's getting tougher and tougher yeah. all the time. And I mean, soybean prices are wow <laughs> right yeah, now so, yeah. so try, trying to pick up extra acres to boost your inventory is not a, a readily available option in a lot of, of areas so how else can you improve your your feed store well the agronomy um mm-hmm. so so putting that emphasis on fertility to, to try to boost yield i think is is the big driver yeah because i know i would say the trend has been over the last say i don't know three to five years is that producers are really cognizant of you know getting a lot more potash more sulfur more more i guess of those building block blocks for some of these uh, alfalfa and hay crops just because yeah i think with the way land price has gone in in ontario is that you know we've only got so many acres that we have to deal with it's really expensive to either rent or buy more acres for feed the herds are growing um it doesn't seem like it but i mean you know, we're, we're not getting a lot of quota growth, um, I guess, but the, but the herds and, and the quota bases are growing slowly mm-hmm. and the land bases I find are just keeping up with it. So, and I think you guys like from the agronomy side of things have done a really good job of, of talking about how we can improve fertility and yield on alfalfa, because I know it's been a little bit of a bee in my bonnet lately about alfalfa is, you know, we're running over hay crop ground you know three to four times a year if you got to pay a custom chopper to come in it's uh you know a thousand to twelve hundred dollars an hour depending on what you're doing like if you're getting a full a full chop if you're hiring it out to get cut and merged and chopped and hauled and packed you know you're looking at twelve hundred dollars an hour to run these things over and if you're not getting much feed off it that makes the feed you got really expensive (laughs) And that's just it. Like yeah. I, I, I find myself saying this all the time. People often forget that the most expensive part of growing a forage crop isn't seeding it. It feels like it at the time because alfalfa yeah. is not cheap, and and you know you've, you've got to do whatever whatever tillage you got to do. You know, a burn down to control the weeds, the seeding itself, and the fertility up front, and all this. And it feels like a lot because it is a lot of money going out at once. But unlike annual crops, we can amortize that cost. Or yeah. the recommendations now isn't by years; it's nine to twelve cuts. So depending on where you are in the province and how aggressive your cutting schedule is, you might get through that, you know, if you're in the deep south targeting five. Yeah. That's two production years. There if might be in, five years. There might be five this year, like just yeah. because cutting and was it, so early down down yeah, in my and, neck. And, of the and woods. there's there's counties in Ontario that, you know, are are one or two cuts a year, right? So that yep. that's like a six or eight year crop. But like yep. so nine to twelve cuts is the guideline. So like if if just to make the math easy, if you say, okay, I'm planning on 10 cuts for this crop. And you take what you spent on establishment and divide it by 10, all of a sudden that doesn't look so scary. It still hurts when you pay the bill, but it doesn't look so scary. And it's, yep. when we think of it like that, that's where you really go, oh man, like the the cost to harvest is basically on a per acre basis. And that doesn't change very much whether you've got a heavy crop Mm-mm. or like. So it's that per no. ton that you have control over. If you can jack that yield up, your cost per acre stays the same, your cost per ton goes down. And that's really where the agronomy starts to pay for itself is is that cost per ton analysis yeah and i know like i've talked to producers about this lately and uh is 
you know, getting more aggressive on your alfalfa cuts and just keeping younger stands around. But again, like you said, a lot of it goes back to seeding cost. But I think if you look at the whole picture of everything with that alfalfa is we need to maximize as much yield as possible. And a lot of times we're seeing, and it was actually specifically 2019 where we've seen a lot of the older stands really get decimated through mm-hmm. a hard winter. The last two winters have been relatively easy, so we haven't seen that. So I know I have a very short memory when it comes to things like that, but, uh, but you know what, it, it might just turn around and bite us in the butt again. But so, you know, just thinking like keeping these young alfalfa stands and then you get the end credit and you can grow a nice crop of corn after, and you know, you're going to get a little more yield out of corn. And I, I think it just accelerates everybody's rotation a bit. So. Absolutely. And like, and th- this is, this is part of why the alfalfa sector has gone to a number of cuts as the recommended lifespan rather than a number of years is partly because we've got such a diverse um, amount of harvest schedules, even in just this province. But part of it too is sometimes we forget cutting is stressful on that plant. Yeah, um, It's a perennial, it's pretty well adapted to bounce back from it as long as it's, it's given, you know, everything else it needs, the right fertility, a long enough rest to regrow, like all of those factors. Um, but once you get past that nine to 12 cuts, then that's a really stressed plant. It's much more susceptible to insect pressure. It's much more susceptible to disease and it's much more susceptible to winter kill. So your yield potential just kind of falls out from underneath you. And that's why having that kind of a target is helpful because you can go, okay, you know what? It's time to retire the stand before I start losing the yield, Mm -hmm. before my cost per ton on that field really starts to, to hurt. Well, and the thing is too, we take away and take away and take away. You still have to put put back in to kind of get that crop to get going and and oftentimes manure just isn't cutting it you know and yeah and like we we started this conversation on on the fertility piece and one thing that the macronutrient that i see is most likely to be missing or not not sufficient in an alfalfa field is potash potassium um and i think i think there's a couple reasons for that i think part of it is because our nutrient management um, re- regulations in Ontario are really based on um, capping nitrogen and phosphorus to protect water quality, right? So yep. you hit you hit the ceiling on one of those, and that that's your maximum application limit. So that doesn't necessarily mean we've met alfalfa's potassium requirements by a long shot, because it has no. the highest potassium demand of any of the field crops that we're growing here. So that's part of it, and I think the other part of it too is is kind of that that fear of milk fever, how, how do we manage those dry cow diets? Um, you know, not being, maybe not having a designated storage set up for some low mm-hmm. feed for those dry cow rations, just, just some of that management. Sometimes it just feels easier to be like, you know what, let's just mine the potash out of it. And then we know we're not going to have an issue, but that hurts the lifespan and the yield potential of the crop. So it, it's finding strategies to like meet that dry cow forage demand, but also have um, the rest of the farm performing really well. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes back down to scale. Like we just don't have the scale to have multiple piles open and making sure that we're managing, you know, three different faces or four different faces, you know, it's, it's just a tough thing to do. And yeah, I think potassium is kind of the overlooked one. And I never realized it until, you know, I get digging in a little bit deeper into the agronomy of forage crops, but like corn has a pretty high requirement. Soybeans have a really high requirement. And then alfalfa is like, next level requirement yeah. so and and a lot of that is because well first of all we take multiple harvests per year and when we're harvesting it we're not just like taking the seeds away right this is a forage no. crop. we're taking all that above ground yeah it's taking um, all the everything. all the fiber and everything and it's green right so like some as those plants senesce some of the k kind of leaches back out into the soil but because this is a green crop it's not doing that it's taking it all yeah. In, yeah. into the into the bunker so um yeah there's that but like if you look at historical some of my colleagues have some historical soil test data and you can watch that potassium soil test trend down on dairy farms over the last 30 years because um, i don't know we, we used to be really good at it and then somehow that that sort of fell off the radar and we're we're starting to see some some issues with k levels well and i think that cows are using feed more efficiently too so they're not getting as much out of the manure like the manure is just becoming more like a fiber and some water and some some of the macronutrients and maybe not what it what it used to be 20 or 30 years ago right so and crop demands like if you look at 
yield, I guess, over the last 30 years, you know, we're pulling way more off. So then you require more nutrients to get more yield and maybe the nutrient requirements haven't kept up with what, what our yield, I guess we're pulling off these farms is so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting argument and we know, we know the genetic potential of alfalfa has come a Mm -hmm. long way in the last 30 years, but the stats that I have actually show our hay yields are declining. Now it's a little bit hard to tease all of this apart because the way, the way that the stats are done is hay is just hay. So that's straight alfalfa. That's alfalfa grass mixes. That's grass. Um, I think they're also using the Stats Canada method, like how they how, how they ask the census questions is part yep. of how these, these questions are structured. And the federal definition of hay is that it's cut at least once a year. So that means if you had a pasture that you, yep. you know, you take first cut and then you graze it for the rest of the year, that's hay. So I think all of these factors are, are coming together to like really pull those hay yields down. So we know the genetic potential of alfalfa is up. Alfalfa breeders have been working on that. So yes, that crop should be needing more nutrients. My data doesn't back up that we actually have mm-hmm. higher yields, but there's so many things that are all mashed together in one category that I'm I'm not disagreeing with you, but I don't have data to back up. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just looking at it like we're running over it more times. And I was looking at, yeah. I was trying to figure out the other day about, I was looking up yield potential in alfalfa, just looking for some general, some general numbers on what you should expect on like a mixed mixed crop hay, like an alfalfa mm-hmm. grass blend. And they like the highest I could find was like three to three and a half tons of dry matter to the acre. And I was pretty astonished thinking, wow, I thought it would be higher than that. Like I almost thought you'd get, you know, two and a half to three just off of one cut alone. And it's hard to kind of quantify if people aren't running their their feet across the scales. So mm-hmm. Other than, you know, the antiquated thoughts of looking at it and saying, oh, that's a pretty good crop. You know, we're getting so many bales to the acre, so many wagons to the acre, you know, it must be good. Um, uh, you know, it's really tough to quantify. It, it definitely is. And that's that's a challenge I have in my role is because, you know, it's not not many farms have a scale. They can just run it over. Right. No. And, and, that's, not, not and that's the thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and that's that's the other thing. It's like bales to the acre. Um, that. That tells you what the baler can do, right? That's a yeah. baler. <laughs> yeah. Well, is you it a four foot, a five yield. foot round? Is it a square? Like, is it a seven foot square or six this foot square? Yield, and you can put it into this package and it's like, wow, that baler did the thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very common way that we talk about yield um, because we, we don't really have much better that's readily available on farm, but it's not actually yield. Yeah. So it, it's hard It's hard to, to make those comparisons yeah. because, you know, your baler Keith and my baler would be set totally different. So even if we're both yeah, absolutely. rounds, yeah. like what do they weigh? What's the moisture content? I don't know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, even just water, right? Like just the water content of mm-hmm. the crop is going to be, you know, quite fluctuate quite a, uh, quite a bit across uh, different cuts. Right. So is there like, we were talking about macronutrients and fertility. Like, can you see a fertility profile in a forage sample? Like, is there nutrients that we can look at and say, Hey, you know, this, for instance, a sample of alfalfa halage is only at a two potassium, you know, maybe we're missing out on yield potential because, you know, typically that should be a three, you know, three plus 2.8 to three or over three. Yeah. So there has been work done on um, alfalfa tissue tests. So when you see those, those minerals in there, uh, like in a, in a standard feed analysis, that's been done on a tissue test. Um, I actually end up seeing more tissue tests than I see proper forage analysis because agronomists will sometimes send me something and be like, what, what's going on here? What, what, should, what should we talk about? Mm-hmm. So I often just see the mineral piece and I don't actually get sent the crude protein and the fiber and the yeah. ash and the rest of it. Um, but yeah, so sulfur is the one that I look at most often um, because like historically sulfur deficiency was really only an issue in the Northwest because they're upwind from major industrial centers, but we have a, you know, a good news story on the environment front. We've cleaned up emissions Mm -hmm. from industry. We've reduced acid rain. All of this is great. It just means that now we have to think a little bit more about sulfur because it's not being deposited with rain anymore. Um, And people are sometimes surprised to hear that alfalfa, not only is it super hungry with potassium, it's also super hungry with sulfur, like even more than canola. And I know canola is the crop that has the reputation for like definitely needing sulfur. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, from a tissue test, that's actually the only way to definitively definitively diagnose the sulfur deficiency is if that's less than I think it's 0.2% sulfur. Okay. Yep. You'd and that's kind of what I've heard. But yeah. I, like I, I look at it and you see, you know, people applying sulfur. So we're seeing, you know, 2.22 to 2.26, for instance, something like that on feed yeah. analysis. Yeah. And um, so it's something that like, we don't have a, a soil test calibrated for sulfur. Sulfur moves through the soil a lot like nitrogen moves through the okay. soil. It leaches very easily. It moves around. If you were to take a soil test and send it to the lab, by the time it comes back, the field is different again, right? So it's it's not, we don't have it calibrated because it's not an easy one to do that way. It's a lot more stable for us to check that out in the plant. Um, but to really make sure that what you're seeing on that test matches the, the calibration is you got to get it at the right time. So kind of bud stage and you clip the top six inches off the plant. So it's not helpful for the cut you're working on it's helpful information for the next cut, right? When we're yeah. looking at dairy operation, like bud stage, you're, you're probably just about ready to chop that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so yeah, there's, there's that one. Um, there are some others and, and we do have some parameters mostly based off work out of Wisconsin. Um, I don't have those numbers memorized cause I don't get asked about them a lot, but I mean, yeah, I, do have, I do have a table. <laughs> yeah. I do have a table of, of what would be, um, you know, ca cause for further investigation in just, because the numbers would be low, yeah. And do you see, like, have you been seeing any foliar application of some of the micros? Like, I, I've asked uh, some colleagues about that, and and they were mentioning that they've had producers asking about it whether they see, you know, a benefit to going in and maybe with some boron or some things like that in a in a foliar spray, like in crop before they cut to kind of boost boost yield or boost yield potential, I guess. Mm -hmm. So boron is. Another one that alfalfa has a relatively high demand for. Um, it's something we have to be a bit careful with in rotation because I think because oh, it, it can be corn? toxic, right? Is it corn that's a little bit sensitive to boron? I forget. There's there's that's something that's an agronomy question. I yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in a crop rotation, we have to be a little careful because some of our, our other field crops are a bit sensitive to boron. Um, but alfalfa needs it, and like to fix a boron deficiency, you're looking at one to two pounds of boron per acre like it's it's a very low low rate um i haven't done a lot of look at the foliar stuff um mm -hmm. just because when it our, our major nutrient issues in forages tend to be our macros nitrogen phosphorus potash sulfur is a secondary nutrient but yeah. those are all needed in big enough you're going to get a better bang for your buck soil applied Make sure, yeah. make sure that you've limed if you need to, and then get that fertility on there. Um, Cause if in a foliar case, that, that nutrient has to go in through the leaves. So that means that's go in through the pores. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not a way to get a lot of nutrient into the plant. Um, okay. And I haven't seen a lot of, of third party data on the, how effective foliars are. So it would probably depend a bit on the nutrient um, it would probably depend a lot on the growing season as well, because, yeah. you know, plants respond to their environment and sometimes they'll have a thick waxy cuticle on their leaf and sometimes they'll, that'll be thinner and it, that might be a little easier for the, the nutrients to get. Like I'd, I'd have to do a deeper dive. Um, but I guess the, the only other thing I would say is like, if you're thinking of applying a nutrient to your forage crop because the cows need it probably not worth the money get the get the no. nutrient directly into the cows feed some sort of mineral supplement to the cow because we can't regulate how well the crop's going to take it up if yeah. if you have a, a nutrient that the crop needs that also benefits the cows yes then apply it to the yeah. crop but yeah I've, I've seen different studies yeah. trying to like oh let's let's feed the plant because we know like minerals incorporated into plant tissue are more readily digestible by ruminants but usually the, the economics don't make sense on well i on those sorts of things, yeah. Well, I know there was a study that was done in Quebec and they were trying to make anionic hay or like oh, a okay. grass hay. Like they were trying to, I forget, this was a few years back and I don't know, I don't, I haven't heard any more about it. So I assume that it didn't grab any traction, but they were trying to make it so that the, the hay had, I don't know if it was higher. Uh, I, I really don't know what they were trying to do, but they were trying to make it so that you didn't necessarily have to feed an anionic salt that that hay crop would already 
kind okay. of help lower the decad in a dry cow diet. Right. But I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know if the, I don't think it got any traction. So I, I don't know. This is the first time hearing about it. I, yeah. It's a cool idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In principle, it's a great idea, yeah. but in practicalities, I don't think it, uh, I don't think it really worked. So, um, and so what are you seeing on that analysis is, you know, that you're, that are coming across your desk? Uh, I guess when it comes to like uh, forage crops, like your, your rye, your triticales, your, um, your alfalfa or alfalfa yeah. silage. Um, <laughs> this surprises people, but I don't actually get sent very many forage analyses. Um, so I don't have a good handle of what the quality is actually testing like. Okay. Um, I, I tend to get more information on how we think yield is going than quality. Okay. Although sometimes tied in with that is, is, is a comment of like, Oh, we think, we think quality is going to be fine. Um, so yeah, because, because we had such a dry spring, um, I'm feeling very optimistic about those winter cereal forages, right? Cause we had a great window to take them off, which means that they shouldn't have headed out. So, you know, dairy quality, we're targeting between flag leaf and boot stage. So if it headed yeah. out, you really missed your window. Um, but because we had such great weather, I think most people that were aiming for that were able to get into the field. One of the comments from them that I'm seeing, and, and I've seen it in my own samples too, is that there is a big variability in protein mm. and, a, and a lot of sugar. So I'm wondering if you could maybe share some light on that. Like we're seeing, you know, 12 to 18% crude protein on triticale or rise, which is a pretty big window considering that a lot of them were harvested, you know, at that flag, like boot to flag before the plant really put heads out. So like would, would the amount of energy or sugar like content, would that affect the protein or? I don't think so. Um, I think it's probably going to come down to how much nitrogen fertilizer, how much manure was applied in the fall. Nitrogen, sorry, nitrogen fertilizer in the spring manure in the fall um, yep. to have that and available for that crop. Mm -hmm. um yeah gra grasses are hungry cereals are, are just an annual grass we've selected for seed production right so they're hungry they like nitrogen um and that's probably going to be the biggest thing the other thing though to check is are they actually are these these samples actually at the same stage of maturity because 12 to 18 to me that's a very reasonable range in crude protein for a cereal for a grass um but i would expect that crude protein content to decrease as the crop matures. So, yeah. so if, maybe that earlier yeah. stuff did get quite a bit, like maybe we were just a little bit before yeah. flag leaf. Like if, if, yeah, if you were like flag leaf, that would be kind of like, I would expect it to be kind of 16, 18%. If yeah. it's, you know, boot stage or the head is just starting to emerge, that's where I'd, I'd expect to see sort of the 12 to 14. So it could just be a simple maturity issue is, yeah. you know, when, when in that, optimum window do they actually get the crop and that could be probably half the half the answer one in one incredible thing i am seeing with some of these samples come back is especially with the annual forages not so much haylage like the hay like the hay silages are, are still pretty normal for energy like a one three to one four megacal uh, per mm -hmm. kilo but these alfalfa and tritic or sorry not alfalfa these triticale and rye samples you know we're pushing 155 i've even seen as high as 1.65 which i thought was pretty amazing but then you go look at the sugar number on it and it's like well, okay that's, that's where it's coming I'm, from yeah. <laughs> so, yeah some of it definitely is sugar the other thing that like i'm, I'm a bit of a grass nerd i love grasses they're such cool yeah. plants um and one of the cool things about them i mean historically we've kind of discounted grasses um because they have higher fiber content than alfalfa. Mm -hmm. And as lab analysis has developed, you know, we've got a much better understanding that, yeah, a higher proportion of them is fiber, but a much greater proportion of that fiber is digestible. So like alfalfa has True. kind of a woody stem, right? So there's, there's yep. a fair bit of lignin in alfalfa. It's got lots of other good things going for it, but it's the, the, the proportion of digestible fiber isn't the same between alfalfa and grass. And I think that's that's maybe a little bit too of what you're seeing in these cereals is yeah, a, a whole bunch of sugar, but then also that high proportion of digestible fiber so that they're that's gonna move through a cow's digestive system a lot quicker. Yeah, and we're straight alfalfa. Yeah. And we're seeing in that in some of our rate functions, right? Like pretty high, pretty high rate function on it. But the digestibility too is just that much higher because like the alfalfa typically we're looking we use a number called G fraction, but it's a 
it's 40 plus, which just means like that it's not digestible. Like 40% of that plant fiber is not available. And we're seeing these grasses down, you know, below 30 a lot of it like below 25 even. So it's like, wow, like this fiber is just like, it's there. Like the cows will be able to utilize that as an energy source. Like we'll allow the rumin ruminant to be a ruminant mm-hmm. and use that, that fiber as energy. So yeah. it's just, it's interesting. So grasses are fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I still got some producers and we still see a lot of like the, the grass fields, like the rye grass or Italian rye and things like that. Yeah. And I actually just looked at one yesterday. It was 19% crude protein on a first cut. And I was like, just about floored. I'm like, wow, uh, like that's some pretty good stuff. Forward. I've seen samples for Italian ryegrasses, for Westerwald ryegrasses. Um, yep. If they get enough nitrogen, 20, 23% protein. Yeah, yeah like that's they, amazing. They blow other grasses out of the water on protein content if you feed them. But they take almost as much nitrogen as corn. Like yeah. they hungry they don't want it all at once like don't don't put your <laughs> your ryegrass nitrogen all on up front um but like after every cut to yeah. the next one they need like 50 to 75 pounds and they'll just as long as it's cool and wet enough which we can't guarantee in ontario summers mm-hmm. we get hot and dry but yeah if you had that that perfect run condition that stuff i mean it's hungry but the protein content and it's so palatable and it's got so much sugar like that stuff's rocking yeah and I mean, we definitely had, at least in Western Ontario, we had a cereal spring. Like it was dry, it was cool, it was, mm-hmm. didn't get overly hot until, you know, the first week of June there. But uh, yeah, no, definitely some some good things. And I know producers too are are excited to put some more um, triticales and rise and things like that in. Just, uh, you know, I think the need for spring feed is, is really there. You know, we're cutting it close on inventories in a lot of places. So, mm-hmm. you know, by planting some in the in the fall and getting some feed in the early in the spring, you know, it makes it for help building inventory through the summer. So. Absolutely. And it's it's exciting with those winter cereals because they're ready before anything else. Right. So like that time when everyone else is feeling squeezed, you're like, Oh, I I just took a crop off. We're going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is though, it's hard to get producers. Like it's a, it's a give and take. Like it's hard to get producers to stop planting corn or beans in the spring when it's time to take forage off. So yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, you gotta got kind of got to take it with a grain of salt, I guess, with the producers and make sure that it fits their, their management style. And, and yeah, it's, it's a tough one, but like I've seen data out of Michigan. Kim Cassida um, has some data on this and uh, she looked at the value of like the, the lost value for everyday delay of taking off um, that early spring cut versus the lost yield potential and the value there of delaying every day of delay of planting your spring grains. So whether, mm-hmm. whether you know, corn, beans, a spring cereal, whatever. And it's so easy to replace energy in a ration. It's so difficult to replace digestible fiber in a ration. Yeah. So hands down, like if, if those two, if planting and, and forage harvest start to conflict in the spring, like the, the thing that makes the most financial sense Park the planter, go get the forage, resume planting afterwards. And it, yeah, it's a really tough one to get your brain around because, like, you just want to get the crop in the ground, but it, yeah. it's so much harder after the fact to to correct that missed forage quality. You might as well just, yeah, correct the fact that you know you maybe didn't get quite the grain yields, and you can you can that's easier to fix. Yeah, and I mean it was a perfect spring for that because we had such a dry May that. It didn't really matter. Producers were okay. Like they were, a lot of producers were wrapped up planting like corn and soy by the, you know, the 15th of May this year. So it's kind of, it was easy for them to say, okay, well it works this year, but then, you know, we go back and kind of refer to the spring of 2019 when everything was a little bit more difficult, you know, guys just finished, like there were still guys planting beans now and guys are talking about second crop or like producers are talking about second crop beans right now. So, you know, history, uh, the history of that wasn't too far away. So I think that's a good segue because, you know, wheat is starting to come off. And I did a little bit of a poll on Twitter this uh, yesterday just to find out what producers were looking at for inventory wise. And mm-hmm. I would say the consensus is everybody's, you know, generally happy with where they're at. So it comes time to make the decision. Are we going to plant, you know, another forage product after after wheat or are we going to try and, and plant some soybeans and get some more um, cash crop income? So what are some of our options after wheat? 
So first of all, you are definitely in the Southwest if you've got time to after your winter Help the long growing season. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when it comes to those forage options, I mean, in the Southwest, you would probably still have time to put a warm season grass in. Um, so I'm talking something like a sorghum species. So sorghum sedan grass is the most popular, um, but Sudan grass or forage sorghum. Um, pearl millet is another good mm -hmm. one. So any of those with that really long growing season in the Southwest, that might be an option if that's what you're looking for. Um, I know that particularly the sorghum sometimes have a bit of a bad reputation in dairy because those really early forage sorghum varieties were a one cut crop and everyone was told to manage it like silage corn. And if you actually let it get to that like, soft dough stage, it feeds like wood chips. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, yeah. I'm happy to say that like, particularly, so sorghum sedan grass, it's a hybrid between forage sorghum and sedan grass. And it, those hybrids tend to have the much better regrowth potential of their sedan grass parent. So sedan grass, very leafy, lots of regrowth. Sorghum sedan grass, very leafy, lots of regrowth, a little bit bigger. Um, so both of those, because they've got that regrowth potential, we get to manage them much more like a forage crop. So we're harvesting a grass. We do not want it to head out um, because the fun thing with them is the strategy for maximum quality is also your strategy for maximum yield. So treating that as a two cut or if you were to get it in earlier, like not after wheat, if you were to plant that in, you know, June, mid-June, you could get two or three cuts off of that crop. Um, and that would be, that, that would be an option there. Um, so yeah, you could probably in, in the deep Southwest, you could probably put in a warm season grass, get one cut off it. Um, you might get two, you might not, but it depends how much of a gamble you want on an open fall. Yeah. It's, it's all frost. It's all frost related, right? Exactly. Exactly. Frost will stop that stuff in its tracks. Uh, and the sorghums, promelit doesn't do this, but the sorghums will produce some prussic acid. So there's a bit of management around that if it gets frosted. Um, it's not insurmountable, but it's something to be aware of that prussic mm -hmm. acid can cause some toxicity issues. Um, if you're not in a situation where double cropping soybeans is a growing season goal, uh, <laughs> then <laughs> probably after the wheat comes off, uh, you're looking at a cool season grass, so a cereal. Um, whether you go for a spring cereal or the winter cereals that we've already kind of been talking about depends a lot on do you want that inventory before winter or after winter? When, when mm -hmm. do you think you're going to come short? When are you going to need that? So if you want it before winter, that's your spring cereals. Um, there was some research done 2012 or 2013 at the University of Guelph with uh, Dr. Beldine. And so he was looking at, you know, what's, what's the recipe? How do we really boost inventories quickly? And the results from his trials showed that it was 80 pounds of oats plus 50 pounds of actual nitrogen. And then cross your fingers and hope it rains. That's, yeah. that's the recipe. Um, the reason that that was the conclusion, he tried some different seeding rates in different plant populations. And to go lower, you didn't get enough yield. And to go higher, you didn't get enough more yield to justify the seed. Mm -hmm. So 80 was the sweet spot. Um, 50 pounds of nitrogen is just to feed that crop. Um, and the reason it was oats is because there's not a whole lot of difference in the quality between cereal species at the same stage of maturity. There are some very small differences, like your nutritionist might have a, a favorite just because they, they get to be really into the details on this kind of thing. But like, really, the difference is very small and oats are normally cheapest. So it, it's an economic decision is why oats was the recommendation. Um, if seed supplies on oats were tight, go for the next cheapest spring cereal. Um, if crown rust might be an issue, right? Because oats mm -hmm. can be really susceptible to crown rust. So more and more often I'm seeing situations where um, a fungicide application is just part of growing forage oats in the fall. Yeah. That's a blanket recommendation from these guys um, because I've seen red tractors and green tractors alike. I don't want to discriminate, but they've all turned orange coming out of oh, oats in yeah. the fall. Exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, if... Um, yeah, if, if you don't want to do the fungicide thing, you know, barley is a little more resistant to rust. Uh, spring triticale is a little more resistant to rust than oats are. So those those could all be swapped out. The yield is very similar. Is there an interaction between wheat and barley? Like it doesn't grow as well after, like barley doesn't grow as well after wheat? Or am I wrong on that? Oh, I don't know. 
I know um, in the agronomy guide, so Omafra's publication 811, there is a table in the cereals chapter that shows um, some suggestions for rotations for crops before wheat. So yeah. that would have some indication of what diseases and things barley and wheat overlap, but I'm not super up on okay. that because I, t- I tend to yeah. defer to Joanna Fallings for that kind of okay. thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Send it to the cereal specialist. <laughs> exactly. She knows her crops. She knows her rotations. Yeah. Disease risk. Yeah. I, I let her deal with that stuff. And uh, yeah. So oats, like, what are your thoughts on like oats and peas? Like I know a lot of producers like to do it because I think the thought there is they get extra protein out of the pre out of the peas, sorry. But the one common thing I always hear about, especially in September when you're cutting that crop, is getting it dry enough to chop because the peas just seem to be rangy in it. Like they just seem to hold that moisture where I think oats you get a better dry down on it to yeah. to get it chopped. So I don't know yeah. what your thoughts would be on that. Peas are harder to dry, definitely. Yeah. Um, as far as that protein content goes, you need at least 50% of that seed mix to be peas before you start to see a a bump in protein. By weight or by volume? By volume. Okay. By volume. Yeah. Um, so 50% by volume. And the other thing too, is they only boost the protein content between two and 4%. Oh, so so not a lot. lot. It's negligible. It's not a lot. Um, I wouldn't say it's negligible, but it's not as much as I think people think it is. So whenever someone's tossing around the idea of, oh, do I, do I grow an oat, a cereal pea mix, whether it's oats or something else, do I grow a cereal pea mix or do I buy in the protein supplement? I tell them, you know what, do, do the math, pencil it out because sometimes it's cheaper to buy protein. Now, I mean, soybean prices are so strong. Yeah. So soybean prices are so strong this year that May, I haven't done the math. Maybe this year is the year to grow peas. Um, and I know oftentimes like our organic dairy farmers, organic feed is so expensive and it can be hard to find. So for them, often it does make sense mm-hmm. to do pea mix because then they get, you know, yeah, it's only two or three or 4% pr- more protein, but it's more protein than they had and they don't have to go track down an organic feed supply. Right. So um, yeah, pencil it out is always my advice to producers is what, what does this deed cost on the peas and what are your other protein supplement options? But uh, yeah, the way the way soybeans are looking right now, peas are starting to look pretty attractive. And it's about yield too, because I, I forget where I've seen the work, but I thought it, it said like your best yield, like on a dry matter per acre would be straight oats after wheat. Peas don't really improve the yield. Yeah, I, I thought it almost gave well, it a yield drag. But maybe I, not, or it was maybe I just like, I don't think I've seen a yeah. yield drag, but you're, you're right. Like it's harder to dry down and the seed costs more and you're getting the same yield. So that yeah. com- kind of comes back to our like cost per ton B- argument. Base right? economics. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. yeah, each, each farm situation is different. So I always just say pencil it out, but yeah, that's kind of the, the things to consider with these. And then do you deal much with like the corn crop side of things when it comes to, to forage stuff? Or are you more on the, like the grasses and, and yeah. alfalfa hay crops? Um, <laughs> ben and I have got a good working relationship on that. Ben Rosser is our corn specialist. So he tends to deal with the agronomy piece. How do you grow this crop? And as soon as it's harvest day for silage, then I take over. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's, he's got the grain background. So like, he, you know, corn agronomy is his, his daily that's, that's what he thinks about all the time, I assume. Um, and then because I, I've got a bit more of that livestock background because I'm, I'm working with feeding, you know, everything else that's filing dry hay, then I, I kind of handle that piece. Um, so yeah, depending on where you're going, I may or may not have an answer. <laughs> well, I just like, we're starting to see our first tassels. I've seen some mm-hmm. on Twitter and just looking around our, our neighborhood too, we're starting to see corn tassels. So I was thinking about fungicide because it's that time of year. It's been real hot, real humid. So I was just thinking out loud like is there a risk for toxins you know the crop's been relatively stress-free so far so maybe we should maybe forego the the fungicide this year what are your what are your thoughts on fungicide on the on corn yeah and uh that's one that i i really would want to kick over to (laughs) so the two of them have done a lot of work on dogging green in the last few years because that has been a challenge um so I guess as far as, as far as, you know, your listeners, if they're looking for information, um, Omafra publication 812 is the field crop protection guide. So it breaks down 
everything that's labeled, like all the fungicides that are labeled for use in corn. I don't know how clearly it spells out which ones are labeled for use in silage or not. You may have to actually go to the product label yeah. to find yeah. that out. Um, but as far as risk, like it's a tough one because the, the amount of dawn in the feed and the amount of fungus in the crop don't always line up the way we think it should. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking like from years past where uh, I think it was 2018 we had bad bad toxins and then I think again before that was like 2016 but 2016 seemed to I might have my years backwards but one affected the cows a lot more than the other like we had higher I think we had higher numbers in 2018 mm-hmm. but it didn't affect the cows as much as it did in 2016 with lower numbers so I was just like thinking about sources right like how is that toxin in there is it coming from you know an insect damage vector or is it coming from this time of year where it's hot and hot and humid and and we're getting that when the when the cob's starting to develop we're getting the we're getting some kind of disease in there like whether it be jib or whatever um to kind of affect the to affect the corn so it's just things i'm thinking about out loud is yeah you know you're driving I mean, around and looking at crops yeah the other thing i would consider too though is if it was lower levels but higher impact in 2015 mm-hmm. People remember that. People are a little more aware. So the next time it comes yeah. around and, you know, the the nutritionist and the sales reps and the OMAFRA specialists are going, hey, guys, watch out for Dawn. That maybe resonates a bit more because everyone's like, oh, yeah, two years ago. That was, that was a thing. Yeah. Um, so that could be part of it as well. Um, the other thing is, like, mycotoxins are complicated. They yeah. We test for the most common ones. We test for the major ones that we have, like, good tests for. But there's a lot of other things in, like, I haven't seen any papers where anyone has a, a really clear idea of how they interact with one another either. So, yeah. or in like, the cow, like you're in the gut or, you know, after the feeds made it past the room and like, we don't know. <laughs> it, it's complicated. Um, and, you know, the other thing is silage corn isn't the only source of corn in, in a lot of diets, right? Mm-hmm. Like dried, distil- dried distiller's grain is really common. And so you get some of that being condensed so like your high moisture corn may be fine, but your distiller's grains coming back, those levels yeah. could be elevated, right? Because the grain corn going to the ethanol plant was like, so it's, there's so many sources too. I don't have it's, a good it, answer for you. <laughs> it's a, it's a tough one for me because I, well, I look at it and we've had other uh, agronomists on the podcast and they've talked about it. It's like, if you're going to take it for forage because it's whole crop fungicide is a no brainer. And on one hand, I get that, but it's still a cost to the producers. But if we're looking to maximize yield and the work is there saying that fungicide will give you pay for itself and plus some, then to me, it makes sense to, to put it on. Yeah. But. And, and there was, there was a trial done Eastern Ontario. I want to say it was around 2013. I don't know why these guys are doing all this yeah. work in 2013. Yeah. I could be way off on that date, but um yeah, they were looking at fungicide in corn, and I think that it was sort of an on-the-fence kind of a result. Mm-hmm. Like, they saw they saw a bit of benefit. Um, it wasn't necessarily consistent over the years that they did it, and some of that comes down to weather. And it, it, to my mind, I kind of want – I shouldn't look at it the way I look at fungicide in alfalfa, but I kind of do because that's, that's the fungicide application program I know best. And so, like, in alfalfa – maybe 50% of the time. Yeah, 50% of the time, it pays right. half the time. Maybe half the time, <laughs> but, but yeah. we know what conditions are more yeah. likely for it to pay for itself, right? Like a long yeah. harvest window, high yield potential, susceptible variety, and the right weather conditions for mold, right? Yeah. Like that, those are, if, if you can check most of those boxes, you can feel pretty good about applying a fungicide to that alfalfa. Um, I'm not as familiar with what those those check boxes are on corn. And so some, yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't delved into this enough. I really should look at it. Uh, refer to your agronomist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go, go bug Ben and Albert. Um, they might know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I guess the one last thing I wanted to kind of follow up uh, while we've got you here, Christine, is, is I know feed prices are pretty expensive when it comes to protein and grain markets right now. It's really good for cash croppers. Uh, not so good for livestock producers when they're buying stuff in. So what would be some tips and tricks that you would maybe give some of the listeners um, to kind of help mitigate purchase cost on the farm? Yeah, that is, that's a fantastic question. Um, I guess, you know, time and again, research on farm experience all over the world, 
homegrown forage is the cheapest source of feed, mm-hmm. but it has to be well-managed forage, right? So this, this goes back to what we talked about, uh, about price per ton versus price per acre, right? To th- those, those costs of production. Um, and it can also, I know it's so tempting, like when you need the feed, nothing else matters. So very mm-hmm. often in those situations where inventories get tight, the agronomy is the first thing to get thrown out the window. I just need the feed, like pound something in, just make it work, take a, a, a cut during the fall rest period, you know, all of, all of those little things and just, we'll figure it out later. We just need the feed. And I, I totally get that because it's super, super stressful to think that you might not have enough, but um, with high grain prices, with, you know, pressure on, you know, it's, it's hard to pick up rental acres. Um, I don't think we can afford to throw the agronomy out the window anymore. We got to keep that yield potential up. So I do encourage producers that this is, this is kind of more of a winter activity um, when, you know, you're not doing the cropping thing and it, it's mm-hmm. taking care of cows. Um, you know, get on the phone when you're coming up with your crop plan. Don't just have the agronomist on the phone. Bring the nutritionist in on that call. Have all three experts at the table. Um, so have the nutritionist, have the agronomist and the producer is also an expert, right? So like the, the agronomist knows about yield potential and crop rotations to minimize pests and insect disease pressure. They can help you find windows for manure application, all of that stuff. The nutritionist, obviously their concern is crop quality. They want great ingredients to help make the ration so that your cows mm-hmm. are milking, so that your heifers are healthy, so that it's all, it's all working properly there. The producer is also an expert, right? Producer knows what labor they have, what equipment they've got. What challenges have they faced in the past? What are their goals on their farm? So if you get all three of those individuals either on the same phone call or at the same kitchen table meeting, if it's safe, um, you, you eliminate a lot of the, the broken telephone, that game that the producer mm-hmm. plays between their advisors trying to figure out what they're going to do next. So I really encourage that when you're coming up with your, your feed and forage crop plan is to get everybody involved so that everyone's on the same page. You understand what the goals are. You can, you can hit those yield goals. You can hit those quality goals. Um, and just, just keeping the agronomy as a focus so that you've got enough of the right quality of feed Because yeah, yeah, it's tempting to, to ignore it, but it'll bite you. I think it goes back to, you got to make sure you feed the feed just so mm-hmm. we have feed, yeah. you know, you, you, you feed your cows really, really well because they need that nutrition to perform. Your crops also need good nutrition to yeah. perform, also need to be healthy and, and yeah. That's awesome. I think we'll end it there, Christine. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know you've had a lot of great information and a, and a good discussion this afternoon, and I really appreciate your insights. And um, I'll put your contact information in, in the show notes, and you're on Twitter as well, right? Yep, um, at O'Reilly underscore egg. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Christine. I appreciate you coming on the DFD podcast and uh, have a safe summer. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.